Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. C-13 Originals. During the time I'd spent in jail after the Polish Women's Hall fight with the breed, I had to teach myself to walk all over again. I started out in the county by holding onto the bars and walking back and forth. I was doing nothing but dragging my legs along behind me. Every day I worked out. We had copped to a manslaughter charge, and by the time I got out 10 months later, I could stand and walk, but still limped real bad. We were all real proud of each other and had a lot of respect for how each of us stood our ground against those breed. We now had the reputation of being deadly and had to keep up the idea because we were going to seek the justice that we felt was owed to Gruber's memory. Which most of all this kind of thinking came from all of us reading The Godfather while we were in jail. I can't even start to tell all the influence that it had on all of us. It became like a Bible to everyone. Before it, we were just going along without a real destiny in mind. All we knew was that if we hung in there with the brotherhood and stayed true to it, Someday it would be perfect and we would get more than just memories from it. We still cussed the Mafia because we felt that they were ate up with greed and we would always say that we would never be like them. But some members had ideas like us getting to a large-scale drug dealing thing which would supply all the other charters with dope and use the club to deal off drugs for us. We'd always dealt drugs, but it was always a small type thing, or at least to us it was. What our main concern was that the police department didn't label us as drug dealers and in turn send the narcs after us. Same with armed robbery. We made rules that no one was to pull any kind of armed robberies because the cops in that department were more efficient and would keep coming after us. And with the type of way we lived, we couldn't stand to be under any scrutiny without losing members and being in the courts all the time. We felt that the club was something that was just starting and we had a long way to go. Money wasn't the goal, and we knew it would come in time if we were true to the patch. The other guys tried to talk everyone into being more of a crime organization and giving up all the ideas of the biker thing, saying that we had a great opportunity as the man just looked at us as dirty old bikers. Before they would snap to it, we could control anything we wanted in Cleveland. But most of us didn't want to be this new type of gangster and wanted to take things slow until we had gotten us all together and the brotherhood thing down pat. All of us that were in jail had a lot of hate built up in us. And because we were more or less the heroes of the day, the rest of the members just went along and began to absorb the same feelings we had. Since the Polish Women's Hall, we had made a law of bones. That required that every member had to kill someone. The people that were in the hall had got their bones that night, so they were excluded from having to do it again. New members had six months from the time they got their patch to earn their bones. From now on, we would make our own rules up as we went along and fuck the world. Without the light or the darkness come Hold through the night mm, The shadows will run Mm-hmm. Fair.
Sing out the jubilee with all the fire we can breathe. My name is Jackie Taylor, and this is Relative Unknown. In the beginning, everything was a party to them. They'd go into a bar as a group, have a good time, and if somebody got in their way, they just beat the crap out of them. They were not going to take any guff from anybody. If anybody tried to go against them, they'd hurt them. It was pretty much, you know, we're going to party every day, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and uh, nothing else mattered. This is retired Cleveland police officer Bob Cermak. Cermak spent more than 30 years on the job, including 17 years as a sergeant in the intelligence unit. With the Polish Women's Hall incident, the Angels created a name for themselves publicly. People were aware that they were around. They saw them as these partiers, these troublemakers. But when the dust settled, you had so many people dead and injured and so many people arrested. And the newspapers for the next several weeks, even months, the Polish Women's Hall incident was the headline. And it was a headline about, okay, how many people died? How many breed were killed? Who got convicted? Who went to jail? Who didn't go to jail? And they became an everyday news item. And I think it sort of went to their heads a little bit. And this is what really pushed them out into the public eye. And that's when the angels really came to the attention of law enforcement. And they began to realize that there was more to life than just partying every day. They sort of grew up a little bit. There was a transition from the ride your Harley till you fall off of it biker to them becoming more businesslike. And uh, the second or the third strongest angel chapter in the whole world. If the club was changing, Butch Crouch wasn't. He was an old school biker in every sense of the word. And there was nothing businesslike about my father people that came to the clubhouse, he was right down the street from the clubhouse, they all would come by and visit with Butch, you know, because he was a good time. He liked to party. That's Matt Zaniskar, one-time Cleveland Hells Angels president and member from 1971 to 1991. Matt Z was in the Polish Women's Hall with my father in 1971, and he said last episode that being part of that brawl and seeing how the members had each other's backs made him realize he wanted to become a Hells Angel. Brotherhood in the raw, as he put it. Matt Z says that that was something that Butch talked about often. A lot of his conversations had to do with the structure of the club, the brotherhood of the club, how to make it better. To some people, he was the glue as far as the ideology of the club was, because he would talk a lot about the ideology of the club. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody can explain that. We felt that we were all tied into this thing until death. It wasn't something that we were just doing for a while until we got tired of it. It had to be a full commitment to work if we were to become the club that we felt like we had the potential to be. We were Cleveland, the best charter on the East Coast. And all the other charters looked at us as leaders of the East Coast. If we got down and really worked at it, we could be the best charter in the whole club. So we talked of having a USA run where all the charters and members could get together once a year and we could learn from each other. Then we set a goal of putting charters in the South and then finding other clubs we could check out and put a charter there. There were a lot of clubs all over the East Coast and we hadn't really made an effort 
to get around to them and start building the club up. My father called himself and brothers like him, true hearts, which meant that they put the good of the club and the biker ideology before everything else. It's a theme that comes up constantly in his writing. He prided himself on being the first member to show up at a run with just a sleeping bag roll on the back of his bike and the last to leave. It's what he lived for. The night before the USA run in 72, I'd went out to a bar in Omaha and got drunk and blew almost all my money. So when I got up to where the run was, I pulled into this marina on the lake. I had just enough to fill up my tank and to order a Coke and a hamburger, which left me with a quarter and the silver peso I always carried. I put the quarter in the jukebox and went down the list of records and there wasn't anything that I wanted to hear or had heard of. Then I seen the title Midnight Rider by the Allman Brothers and thought it was appropriate since I had been traveling mostly at night. So I played it. I'd never heard this song before and when I started to eat the hamburger, the words of this song started saying everything that I'd been saying to myself all the way from Cleveland. I almost choked when it said, got one more silver dollar. As I sat there listening to the song as if it had been written just for this moment and for me, I was looking out towards the east and west and thinking to myself about all the brothers that were true hearts who were headed towards this spot and coming from all over the country just to be together. I don't think I was ever more prouder or conscious of who I was and what we were at that time. I looked forward to the USA run all year I began to live for those few weeks of the year because it was the time that we were all together. And I could really look at everyone in the same setting and see how we were growing and changing. Seeing old brothers that I hadn't seen since the last run and talking about someone who had died during the year and wouldn't make it to any more runs. Here, everyone had to be who they were because it's impossible to fool everyone else here. I loved it. Staggering around all night, trying to squeeze out every minute of the time and afraid to go to sleep for fear of missing out on the little time that we had to party all together all at once. Knowing all the time that many of the members that were there wouldn't be back the next time because they'd be killed. Here we were family, brothers. This is where all my worth was appreciated. Who I was, how I dressed, how I lived. which was known all over the United States, you know, especially with the newer charters being put together. He would go out and visit. He would go out and stay with people. And in other words, he was trying to find out what they were all about. He was vetting them. In October of 1972, Matt Z had just been named president of the Cleveland chapter. And he and my dad, along with a few others, took a ride down south to check out a club that was hoping to start a Hells Angels charter. So we went down to check these guys out in Memphis, Tennessee. It was Deacon from Oakland, and uh, him and I and Butch and Tommy Padovic went down to check out these people that wanted to come into our club and um, give them the time and exposure to convey their feelings as far as being representatives of the whole group of other people that wanted to come our way. So the next night, we're going to go out. We're going to go to the same bar that they really had a good time. There was a band there, blah, 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 blah. We go there. There's a barmaid. Nobody is in the bar. Hmm. 
guess maybe we're a little bit earlier. So there was six of us. Say, wow, this is very unusual. Yeah, I thought, where the hell is this big party going on? And then next thing we know, the cops pull up, and uh, in come uh, these cops to the front door. And I went up right away. I introduced myself. I told them who I was and that I was president of this group. And is there a problem, you know, because they came in rather aggressively. And then the shit just hit the fan. The door flew open, and there was these cops standing all around. They had these big white nightsticks that were about three feet long, and we found out later that they were lead-filled in one end. I ran out the door, and as I went out of the bar onto the sidewalk, I could see that Tommy and two other guys were laying on their backs on the sidewalk, and a bunch of cops were standing over them all, beating them with these nightsticks like they were chopping wood, as if they were afraid to stop. I grabbed this one cop that was beating on Matt and yelled at him to quit because Matt was out cold, and I screamed, hey, you're gonna kill him. Can't you see that he's out? But by the time I got that much out of my mouth, there was about eight cops all over me beating the shit out of me with those sticks. I had this big leather hat on that I had made and reached up and grabbed the sides of it and pulled it down and was using it like a helmet. But as they seen what I was doing, they started hitting my hands and I let the hat go. They busted my head open and I heard someone yelling at them to stop because he had seen the whole thing and we hadn't done anything. Then I heard this one cop say, hey, wait a minute, let old Wolf get in there and get him a piece of that motherfucker. I felt this fucking dog bite me in the back of the shoulder and start growling and shaking his head and tearing at me. I turned over and he was all over me, biting and growling. It was a German Shepherd, and that motherfucker was going at it with all he had and kept trying to get at my neck. I could hear all these cops laughing and yelling, kill Wolf, kill, kill. I reached up under Wolf and found his nutsack and got a real good hold of it and started squeezing and jerking as hard as I could all at once. He was spinning around and biting my hand, and I wasn't about to let go, even though it was hurting like a bitch every time he hit my hand. Whoever old Wolf belonged to was screaming his head off and was trying to get Wolf away from me. But I was holding on for dear life, and I had Wolf's front leg in my other hand and had him pulled over me so that they couldn't hit me without hitting him. Old Wolf was screaming like a siren and pissing all over me. Then I seen stars and realized that this cop was beating me in the head with his pistol. I let Wolf go and he took off like a shot. I had bite marks all over my arms and legs and around my ear and the side of my face. When they finally stopped beating on us, I looked around and I saw Matt was still laying in the same place and out cold. But blood was just pouring out of the top of his head onto the sidewalk. The whole sidewalk was covered with blood. And it reminded me of the Polish women's hall, the way the blood was spreading out from everyone laying there. They beat the dog shit out of us. We were known as the Shit Stick Six. Down there, they had these riot batons. They were like three foot long, so that way you can get a good grip with both hands. And they put dogs on us and the shit sticks. We all went to the hospital. They had to give me blood. They gave me a transfusion, and uh, then they charged us with attempted murder on a cop. The Shitstick Six were all charged with assault to murder. The Tennessean newspaper said, quote, Witnesses to the fight said the cyclists were minding their own business when a host of squad cars swarmed down on the lounge and police began beating the bearded group with billy sticks. In one Ohio newspaper, the deputy chief of Memphis, W.O. Crumby, was quoted as saying, 
we're not going to allow them to organize in this city. Everybody thought that that's what the reason was. They didn't want Hells Angels in Memphis. That was not the reason. The reason was, and this came out later on, this particular member in that group of six was an asshole. He went to Graceland shooting his gun off. Motherfucking Elvis Presley calling him out, calling him a punk motherfucker. That's what caught the ear. So naturally, a phone call goes out and say, hey, this fucking asshole's out. I, you know, I mean, what what is the reason for that type of behavior? You know what I'm saying? Did Elvis do something to you or somebody in his crew, did they do something to you? But this was the reason why those cops come down on us the way they did. Give no quarter, ask none. With little evidence to prove the accusations by the Memphis Police Department, the case was settled and charges were dropped. But back in Cleveland, new wars were heating up. Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey friend, it's Cammie Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you can always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationshippod.com or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cammie Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Cleveland, which has been in default since midnight Saturday, today learned something of the price it will pay. Sharply reduced city services in the wake of massive layoffs, with no indications its badly split municipal government can put together a rescue. Bob Fall reports. Starting January 2nd, 20% of Cleveland city workers will lose their jobs. 875 Cleveland policemen, just under half the department, will be laid off, as will 400 firefighters, just under 40% of that force. Garbage will be collected only half as often, just once every two weeks. All the city's recreation centers will be closed. In 1978, Cleveland became the first city since the Great Depression to default on its financial obligations. People were moving out of the city. Property values were declining and many feared there would be a substantial increase in crime in the city. But if anybody had been paying attention, they'd already know that the 1970s Cleveland underworld was as vibrant as anywhere else. In the late 70s, there was a major mob war going on, and it was started by an Irish gangster named Danny Green. Green was all hooked up with the Hells Angels. Uh, He also ran the Longshoremen's Union, and Green got into a mob war with the real people, the La Cosa Nostra. He took money from them and then basically said, fuck you, when they came to collect. At that time, journalist and author Bill Mushi was reporting on organized crime for Cleveland Magazine. I fell in love with covering bad guys. The classic example was I wrote a profile of the new leader of the mob after another one died on an operating table. And... Uh, My boss took me over to Little Italy for lunch, and I'm sitting there with my boss 
eating some ravioli or something, and all of a sudden a black limo pulls up and out jumps James Licavoli, Jack the White, they called him, and uh, he was the new godfather. And he comes walking in, and I'm thinking, he has never seen me. I wrote about him and his other people. He's never seen me, so I'm cool. And then his mouthpiece, his lawyer, uh, comes walking in and says, there's that moochie guy. And so the old man walks over to me and says, you're the guy to write the story about me? And I said, yes, sir. And he says, you come over here and join me for lunch. And I'm going, no, no, thank you. <laughs> no last meals. <laughs> and uh, and uh, finally says, you got your job, I got mine. And that's when I realized that these mob guys and these bad guys loved it when you write about them. Rick Perello has written about them too. Perello is a retired Cleveland area police chief and the author of four books about organized crime in Cleveland. And he goes into more detail. Within the Cleveland Mafia history, through the 60s and going into the 70s, things were running rather smoothly until a very respected Mafia ally by the name of Shonda Burns, probably Cleveland's most notorious Jewish racketeer, got into a war with an Irish racketeer by the name of Danny Green. And they started going after each other, placing bombs on each other's cars and and threatening each other. And uh, that war ended when Shonda Burns, who was a respected Mafia ally, was killed by a car bomb in May of 1975. Things were really flown into a flux in May of 1976 when John Scalish died. John Scalish had been the long time, I mean, for several decades, he'd been the boss of the Cleveland mob, and there was no definitive successor named. He had not made that clear before his death. It was a natural death. He died during heart surgery. So there was this power vacuum that developed. And the guy that was put in charge of the Cleveland mob, his name was Jack White. His actual name was James Licavoli. And so a war began for control of the Cleveland mob and everything that went with it, vending machines, gambling operations, the skim money coming in from mob-controlled casinos in Las Vegas. And on the other side was Danny Green, who took the opportunity to go after Licavoli and basically try to take over the reins of the Cleveland mob. Green was a fiercely proud Irishman, and he felt that there was no reason why the Italians should be at the top of organized crime in Cleveland. He felt he should be an Irishman. Here's Green in 1977 doing an interview in front of his apartment building. You know, it's widely speculated that you are also a target in this so-called, quote, gangland war for control. What's your answer to that? The world of uh, the streets, I happen to have an unenviable position of many people because I'm in between both worlds, a square world and a street world, and I think I have trust from both sides. But I have no uh, no axe to grind, but if somebody wants to come after me, uh, we're over here by the Celtic Club. I'm not hard to find. So this war began for control, and uh, bombs were a frequent weapon of choice throughout this conflict. And Hell's Angels were retained as enforcers by both factions in several cases. There were two Hell's Angels, Enos Cernick and George Rothrock, that were skilled in the use of explosives. And it's believed that Rothrock and Cernick were used in the murder of Chandra Burns by Danny Green's crew. That's probably the first time that members of the Hells Angels were used in an organized crime murder in Cleveland. And at that point, members of the Hells Angels were now part of that extended network 
of the mob in Cleveland. In 1977, Enos Cernick was retained to plant a bomb on the car of a mafia associate. The bomb detonated prematurely and Cernick was killed. But the Hells Angels were called upon for their services and they were very capable of that type of violence. As for Danny Green himself, he proved to be an elusive target for Licavoli. One of Perillo's books is called To Kill the Irishman. There were probably four attempts by bomb. There were other attempts on his life, but actually by bombing, not long after Shonda Burns was killed, uh, just within a matter of, of a few months, there were two bombs placed on Danny Green's apartment building. And one of those bombs went off and the other one was improperly wired and, and the explosion leveled the building. Danny Green received some injuries, but he walked away from the blast. It seemed like every attempt that was made either was fouled up or uh, it didn't work. And uh, he seemed like uh, a man that uh, was invincible, a man with uh, nine lives. That's the voice of Ray Ferrito, a hitman hired to kill Danny Green after so many failed attempts. Ferrito tapped Green's phone, and he overheard that Green would be making a visit to his dentist. October of 1977, the mob hitmen did not place the bomb actually on Danny Green's car. They placed it in a car. They, they call it a Joe Blow car. Basically, a car registered to a fictitious name to make it much more difficult for it to be placed. And to maximize the explosive value, they actually built a steel bomb box to direct the blast outside the car, and they put it inside the passenger door. They basically hollowed out the door and, and welded this box inside the passenger door, put the explosive, the remote-controlled explosive, inside that door, and they were able to get a parking spot uh, right next to Danny Green's car so that the passenger side of the bomb car, the Joe Blow car, was right next to the driver's side of Danny Green's car. So when Danny Green returned from the dentist's office and went to get in his car, the mob hitmen detonated the bomb inside the bomb car and Danny Green was killed instantly. Here's hitman Ray Ferrito again, who'd later confessed to the Green hit. Well, to me, it was like uh, having a glass of wine. Didn't mean a thing to me. I killed him and, uh, and I there was uh, no remorse that I killed the man because that was part of my life. I was brought up uh, all through my life believing that those, you just have to put them out of your mind. Those were things uh, or hurdles that you had to overcome. A man with a conscience uh, doesn't last too long on the streets. The Danny Green bombing is Cleveland's most notorious, but to law enforcement during that time, it was just one of many. In the mid-70s, Cleveland was called the bomb capital of the United States. Patrick Reynolds was a sergeant in the Cleveland Police Department's bomb squad then. In 1976 or 1977, we had 37 separate incidents of either a bomb going off somewhere or a bomb being found which did not go off. 37 incidents, that was more than New York City, it was more than L.A., more than anybody. And Bill Mushi again. There were things going on virtually once a week. And it was just a 
It was a wild period of time in Cleveland, totally out of control. Cleveland Police Department, Homicide Unit Investigative Report Synopsis. On January 7, 1975, at 11.40 p.m., units of the Cleveland Police and Cleveland Fire Department were dispatched via radio. Explosion in a home at 6101 Lansing Avenue. This is part of an investigative report detailing a bombing in Cleveland in 1975. An explosive device had been detonated in the kitchen of this home in the downstairs apartment occupied by the William Sigley family between 11.30 p.m. and 11.40 p.m. The effects of this explosion caused the floor of the kitchen to be blown to the basement, upwards to the kitchen ceiling, and outward to the four sides of this home. Here's retired Cleveland Police Bomb Squad Sergeant Patrick Reynolds. I got a call in the middle of the night, a bomber in Lansing Avenue, and... Um... We knew when we arrived at the scene that the bomb was a major one. Like, holy shit, this is really bad. Things blown 100, 150 feet away at least. There were doors blown across the street. It's complete devastation. You see the exposed rooms on, on the upstairs where people had lived at one time. It was three or four o'clock in the morning and the decision was made, we're just gonna secure this area and come back in the daylight hours when we could do a more thorough and proper job. And that's what we did. The next day, the Cleveland Plain Dealer ran a story with the headline, Blast in House Kills Three, Injures Three. It reported that police said the explosion might have been caused by a bomb delivered to a house in a suitcase. Witnesses said they heard the blast a mile away. The explosion killed Marianne Sigley, 21 years old, her son Michael, two years old, and a family friend named Burdell Mike Offit. 22 years old. A young married couple who was friends with the Sigleys was at the house during the time of the bombing. They survived, barely. Later, the young lady was interviewed at the hospital by a CPD detective. This is the report from that interview. The young lady described hearing a sound like an air rocket, like they have on the 4th of July, like a hissing sound. Minutes later, Marianne said she heard what sounded like someone walking up the front porch. At this point, Marianne got out the shotgun and pulled the slide back. Five minutes later, the bedroom window was broken. Marianne was standing in the doorway and made the statement, Get back out or I'll blow your brains out. Marianne told the young lady that she didn't see the person, but she saw the curtain on the window move as though the person were trying to come into the bedroom. Ten minutes later, the young lady's husband and their friend, Burdell Mike Offit, pulled up. When they came into the kitchen, Offit was carrying a briefcase by the handle, which he found on the porch. He put it on the table and then laid it flat on its side. Marianne made a comment about the funny things happening around the house, and that because of those things, the case could be a bomb, and that he should take it back outside. Offit reached for the clasps on the case. The young lady heard a click. One second later, there was an explosion. At the time, the young lady was holding the baby. The next thing she knew, she was lying under board and dirt. The young lady was just 16 years old. She lost an eye, part of her hearing, and much of her intestines. 
Her body had blotches of blue tattooed into it from the C4 explosives used, and she spent 11 months in the burn unit wrapped in pigskins. We went back to Lansing Avenue the next day. This particular crime scene was emotionally very, very difficult because of the victims. You know, we had a a two-year-old child, a young mother who had absolutely nothing to do with the activities going on in the home. They were just living there. Most of our bombing victims, they were involved in some criminal activities, gangsters going after other gangsters. These were not. So we meticulously went through room by room, area by area, inside, outside, searching for evidence which could be used to identify the bomb and possibly the bombers. Detective Reynolds says he found something strange at the scene. We found what is called a signal illumination parachute flare, the ground white star parachute flare, which is a type of flare used by the military to illuminate a scene at night. At the time, we really weren't sure what the purpose of it was, We believe it was to signal somebody else to detonate the bomb. These are the types of flares that you see in Vietnam War movies. They're shot up in the air and then fall to the ground with a white parachute. It's unusual to find this type of device at a crime scene. It was the only time in all the crime scenes I did, and I did thousands of crime scenes. But these types of crimes are not solved overnight. These types of crime take a lot of investigation from our intelligence unit, the organized crime unit, the FBI was involved, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms units were involved. They always had suspicions who did it, so it wasn't like unsolved in our minds, but it was unsolved at a point where you could never bring a case to court with the evidence that we had. One of the members had his birthday party, and I had Mary make the cake. His birthday was at the end of December in 74. We all started showing up at the clubhouse around seven and I put the cake on the coffee table and he was excited because this was his first birthday party as a member, which at this time was a big event with all of us. But then a couple members pulled him to the side and after a few minutes, he started yelling for everyone to leave that there wasn't going to be a party. We asked what was going on and someone said, well, he hasn't rolled his bones yet. So he's not a full-fledged member and not entitled to a birthday party till he gets his bones. So with a lot of yelling, everyone stomped out. And he grabbed the cake and set it on top of the icebox and yelled out, well, you can bet one thing, before this cake is stale, I'll have my bones and we'll have this party. I started to put his cake in the icebox and he said for me to just leave it on top because it wasn't gonna take that long. One of the members told him to do it right and to not just roll out and kill someone. Find an outlaw's address. A week or so later, Beetle was over to the apartment, and we had been sitting around playing with the baby. He was really crazy about that baby. Jackie was about 10 months old, and I remember him sitting with her on his lap and pulling at his beard, and he was laughing and yelling at the same time. He left late, and the next morning he called and said, you heard about it yet? Turn on the TV. I had just got up and was sitting there with Jackie in my lap, I reached over and turned the news on, then sat froze as the reporter was talking about this house getting blown up. Some guy and a woman and her baby got killed. I was saying over and over to myself, God, don't let that be something we did. But it was our law of bones that got them killed. 
We had went to war on the outlaws for revenge of them killing our brothers. Beetle told me, as far as I know, the guy wasn't an outlaw. He just knew some, or was friends of theirs. I said, it's this whole thing of killing that has us all fucked up. And if we don't do something about it, I'm gone, and if anyone don't like it, then I'll deal with it. For weeks after this, whenever we were at the clubhouse or seeing each other, we seemed to not be able to look at each other. And there seemed just nothing to talk about. Like before, if I was walking out of the apartment with Mary and Jackie, if there was someone around, they would come over and take Jackie and look her over and play with her. But now if someone was around and seen us, it was, it was like she was a plague or something. They would take one look and turn away, not wanting to see her, because it would remind them of the whole thing all over again. Mostly I was afraid for Mary and the kids that I was going to blow it some night about the Sigley bombing. I knew if I did, they'd do something to me, then they'd go after Mary thinking I'd been doing some talking between the sheets and she knew too much. I just shoved everything out of my head about the killings, which seemed to be a constant job as time went on. I'd tell myself I was tough, and that's the way we should be thinking, and that I was weak if I let myself be weak and let those things get to me. But that only lasted for a short time, and I would always feel the effects of all I knew come back and haunt me. It seemed to be a door in my mind that I was always trying to keep closed, always fighting against the rotting of the rest of my mind. Without the light Or oh, the darkness come Hold oh, through the night Shadows will run. On the next episode of Relative Unknown. You're going to have to give us some idea of what you can tell us about, like, you know, the victims of homicides or bombings or whatever. Can you lay anything like that on me? No, I I am laying nothing on the phone. I don't know what the fuck, you know, whether you're just going to take me, use me up, drop me off on a fucking limb somewhere. One phone call that changed our lives forever. This is all a new game to me. This is a whole new ball game. So he came in and shut the door to the office, and he said, Would you believe it if I told you that we rolled an angel? Relative Unknown is a creation and presentation of C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, and Rumor, Inc. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, David Balinson, Michael Galinsky, and Suki Holly. Written, produced, directed, and edited by Zach Levitt. Produced and edited by Perry Kroll. Our theme song is Change on the Rise by Avi Kaplan. Original music composed by Joel Goodman. Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production support by Ian Mont and Lloyd Lockridge. Field recording by Rich Berner, Michael Galinsky, Perry Kroll, and Connor Waddingham. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malingone. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. I'm Jackie Taylor, and thanks for listening to Relative Unknown.
You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.